We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Stop Talk Radio, the world from people who think. Bradley, myself, and we've got Pierre with us. Pierre Hello. Hello to everyone. Jason is apparently mute, so we won't be hearing much from tonight. Well, you know, I just got over a sickness. I'm still not feeling Yeah, <laughs> Jason down there, but he's back. I'm back. So, okay. okay. Uh, the show this week is about, uh, for those of you who have checked the, uh, the website, is about, or is titled Assassinated Heroes. Um we basically figured that we wanted to do a show on uh, individuals from history. The suspicious number of yeah. individuals from history. Yeah. Um, suspicious number in the sense that they are, they're not, unfortunately, there aren't a lot of them, um, relatively speaking, but they all have certain things in common in terms of what they try to do in their lives and also usually how they died, which was that they were assassinated. Mm. So they're, they're few in number, but the percentage that died, let's say prematurely, I think that covers all the bases, mm-hmm. is, well, it, it stands out. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, it, 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 it begs discussion and answers, I think. We could go over at it from another angle. Can you name like a single person who is undisputedly an international hero who wasn't killed prematurely in some sort of Suspicious accident? I mean, well, it depends. which one lived to old age? It depends what you describe. The problem here is it depends what yeah. you describe as, an, as a hero, you know, or a national hero or an international hero. Some people who would say Churchill, for example, was a hero. Yeah. In fact, a lot of people would say people like Churchill or... I don't know. I think the image painted of Churchill in, in Little Hearts' history of the Second World War was not particularly flattering. It yeah, made him look like a bit like a warmonger, you know? Well, that's what he was, but you go and ask the average British person and they're going to... Tell you that he was a hero. You know, yeah. I'm going to tell you that you know the people who play for you know Arsenal or whatever they call it, the, the yeah. football teams are heroes too. I mean, they, they did a pretty formal poll about ten years ago. Um, it was open for some time. It was widely publicized. Uh, apparently, they caused some attempt to, to try and rig the vote. So that we're told did not happen. Anyway, Winston Churchill came out as uh, greatest Briton of all time. Followed by Brunel, engineer and architect, I think. And third was Lady Diana. Um, yeah, there you go. And so, so, ba- so basically, the point here is that, uh, just to sum up, there are uh, a small group of historical figures who, uh, when you scrutinize the details of their lives, uh, despite what the history books might say about them, they are revealed to be pretty much true and unsung heroes. Uh, that is, the details of their lives and their deaths tell a story of ultimately what are unrealized uh, potential, uh, their unrealized potential to, to change human society for the better. And to, uh, maybe not consciously, but they certainly could have served as role models for, for most people, for everybody, pretty much. 
but unfortunately they, their lives were were dramatically cut short by either an assassin's bullet or some other fatality caused by a a plot hatched by the established authorities of the day. Um, so there's a long list. Uh, I don't know. Does anybody have any favorites? Who's your favorite hero? Who got well, killed? when I was making my list, I mean, I, I think it's your point of reference, you know. So I ended up having most of them from the 20th century. So they're relatively recent. Um, I think number one in that would be JFK. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, I'm going to have to dispute that one. At least in terms of, like, I was trying to think of criteria. There are some on, on my list that are that would be not so well known because they were doing their thing on a relatively local scale, mm-hmm. i.e., for their own country or region. And even within that, there are heroes, you know, at maybe different levels. But JFK, I mean, there's a guy who finds himself supposedly leader of the free world. And he starts doing something he's not supposed to be doing. That um, the only the only other comparison I can see with that is the example we've discussed in the past few weeks with Julius Caesar, mm-hmm. where you have someone who's in control of, or potentially in control of, an empire, mm-hmm. many many min- masses of people. Um, therefore, the shock of him being done away with, just when he was getting into his prime makes it all the more greater in terms of a bereavement for people who feel like uh, who feel the tragedy of it mm-hmm. and a, a sense of loss even now 50 years later for me someone who was born long after of of the potential <clears throat> for good that could have come from mm-hmm. absolutely i mean he <clears throat> he pretty much everybody knows i think it's even recognized by even his detractors that he was uh, he was striving for peace. Uh, he aspired to peace for as many people as possible and as little war as was uh, uh, as possible, or only war when it was absolutely necessary. And he figured that he could uh, that even that even war would be unnecessary, at least in terms of his vision, if you could promote the put the infrastructure in place that would. Uh, would facilitate peace around the world, you know, and I suppose people with uh, in position of power and people at the head of an empire certainly do have uh, a lot of power to do as they will. And one thing they could certainly uh, use that power to to affect is a peaceful society. You know, I mean, that might involve forcing some people to be peaceful, but so be it. That's better than uh, forcing your, your will on people and creating more war. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and from Julius Caesar to uh, Yasser Arafat or JFK or the modern day heroes, the modus operandi is always the same. And you have literally dozens and dozens of examples where basically you have a leader, someone who gains power. But unlike the other leaders, this person is really trying to serve the good of humanity. He's really trying to alleviate the pain of his fellows. Uh, which doesn't fit at all with the plan of the PDBs. And uh, this person, if they don't manage to neutralize him, this hero, if it cannot be neutralized because of bribery, because of threats and other techniques, will end up dead. Sometimes it's an obvious assassination, of course, uh, 
either a legitimate assassination as the elites tried to depict Julius Caesar's assassination or a lone man crazy act like for GFK and the Harvey Oswald or an accident like for Diana or suicide like, uh, like the French Prime Minister in, uh, in the 90s, Pierre Bergevoix, who suicided with two bullets that were found in his head. And after the act, there is a rewriting of history aiming to depict, to demonize the hero. Like all those stories about JFK, womanizer, or, or the way Julius Caesar is depicted in official history, like a, a, a bloodlusting, ambitious the emperor, mm-hmm. and he was the opposite of that. Well, even, even now, JFK is, I think, he's still attributed with having started the Vietnam War, or at least that it started under his watch. Um, it's only when you look at the complexity of how the real decision-making process takes place in the U.S. government and any government today that you realize that it it's set up so that the president, the commander-in-chief, is not really the commander-in-chief. I think the difference was that JFK got in there and said, right, I'm going to actually do all these things on paper that the, the people, people think the president I, is supposed yeah. to do. Yeah. And then the people around him were like, uh, no. Yeah, he didn't bow down to the kind of the backroom boys and this is the way it works here, you know, so just get in line and... And, and do your job type thing. You know, he figured, okay, I'm the president. I have a lot of influence and power. People look up to me. And this is what he understood, you know. Uh, same with, in the same way with Caesar, he, he realized that despite the fact that um, there were all these forces behind the scenes in the U.S. that were essentially in control, uh, he had a secret weapon, essentially. And that was more or less what Neil just described, which was the awareness or the belief among the population that he was the commander-in-chief and he took the decisions. Therefore, he had essentially people power uh, as, a, as a force that he could use, you know, against these other shady elements that were essentially, you might call them the shadow government or the people who were essentially run things behind the scenes. And yeah. that's what he tried to do, you know, he spoke very often. Uh, I think there's some, he's held some kind of record for the number of uh, public speeches or Something along those lines. He 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 was he was he clearly understood that the way to get uh, the way to use his power, the way to get support, was to derive it from mm-hmm. the people, and then be able to point at people and say, "Look, I mean, this is what they want," and then go back to Congress or whatever and say, "Look, you know, this is what the people want. We're all here about you know, we're all servants of the public, right? You know, it's kind of calling their bluff essentially, you know." And it was not uh, only Very it was not the manipulation. This uh, proximity with the people, those leaders, those heroes, often display this uh, this attribute, this uh, this true empathy, this proximity with people. Yeah, and I mean, it was genuine. Yeah, yeah. And, and one fundamental difference, I think, between JFK and Caesar, is that uh, Caesar, after the the civil war, had total and absolute power, so he could manage quick and efficient reforms mm-hmm. and changes. What he did for five years before his assassination, he made fundamental changes and he really improved the life of, of the poor, of the people. And I think it set a precedent for the elites who realized never more. By now, we're going to take the me- measures for never again to have a true hero, someone who cares about the people who is in full power. And one among the many techniques they implemented was the dilution 
of the personal power of the official leader mm. becoming more puppet. That's why for GFK, I think it was because the mandate of GFK as a president was uh, several years, 62, 63, uh, three years during which he had to fight every step, every law to implement progress. Mm. Okay, I don't think I really have a, a favorite uh, among these people who have been uh, assassinated over the past, you know, I don't know, I think we're talking really in the past uh, 100 years kind of thing, um, because pretty much they all had uh, um, an agenda that was similar. They all had a, a common agenda, which was to uh, play fair, basically, and to try to um, use the power that they had for the benefit uh at least as much as possible for the benefit of the people, you know, <laughs> certainly to not abuse them, to not, and to not uh, be doing any shady deals or, you know, that would ultimately, uh, you know, decrease or diminish the lot of the average person. Uh, and certainly for leaders like JFK or people who had more influence, certainly their their, their agenda and that scope was, was worldwide, you know. Yeah. So, so sometimes it's... Uh I noticed when thinking about this question, who who was your favorite hero or what story was the most touching, in your opinion, sometimes the dramatic dimension add to the to what you feel. I know uh, when I read about uh, Bobby Kennedy's it's a story, I find it even more touching that, uh, than GFK's story. Although Bobby Kennedy was not elected, he had less power, he had less implemented less positive changes, but the fact that, I mean, he went back to politics after years of grieving and hesitation and he knew oh, it was very likely what would happen to him like it happened to his brother. Um, the dramatic intensity around the Bobby Kennedy case, I find it very heartbreaking. Yeah, they they could not even let him finish those primaries. Mm. I mean, that's how... Yeah, because they knew the kind of, that the people wanted him basically yeah. in, in, as, as the president, you know. Uh, that's where it was going. Uh, they saw him as essentially as a replacement for for JFK, you know. Um, there's actually a, a good uh, indication of the kind of person that Robert Kennedy was was when he uh, when Martin Luther King was killed. He um, he decided that he wanted to announce it. I think he was still uh, Attorney General at the time. And he wanted to announce it to the to the people, you know, and this was before anybody knew. So he decided that he wanted to go out and in public, and he went down to um, he went to a an area that was basically a, a black kind of ghetto area. That's the way it was described to him by his assistants, and they warned him that um, if he went there and told these people that Martin Luther King had been shot. Um, or confirm it for them that there might be serious civil unrest and that they couldn't assure his his safety. But he decided to go ahead and do it anyway. He didn't care, and um, he did it from the back of a uh, of a flatbed truck. He just got up and he he just he wrote the speech on 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 the way there, and it's a fairly short speech. And I just want to play you some of it here because it's, it's I think it's very. Uh, it's pretty, like appears to say it's very touching and it's very interesting just in, in terms of uh, the kind of the approach he took. Yeah, the kind of, kind of guy he was, you know. 
I have some very sad news for all of you, and I think uh, sad news for all of our fellow citizens and people who love peace all over the world. And that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis. Martin Luther King dedicated his life to love and to justice between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort. In this difficult day, in this difficult time for the United States, it's perhaps well to ask what kind of a nation we are and what direction we want to move in. For those of you who are black, considering the evidence evidently is that there were white people who were responsible, you can be filled with bitterness and with hatred and a desire for revenge. We can move in that direction as a country in greater polarization Black people amongst blacks and white amongst whites filled with hatred toward one another. Or we can make an effort, as Martin Luther King did, to understand and to comprehend and replace that violence, that stain of bloodshed that is spread across our land with an effort to understand compassion and love. For those of you who are black and are tempted to fill with, be filled with hatred and distrust of the injustice of such an act against all white people, I would only say that I can also feel in my own heart the same kind of feeling. I had a member of my family killed but he was killed by a white man. But we have to make an effort in the United States. We have to make an effort to understand, to get beyond or go beyond these rather difficult times. A favorite poem, my, my favorite poet was Aeschylus. He once wrote, even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own day despair against our will comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. What we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country, whether they be white or whether they be black. We can do well in this country. We will have difficult times. We've had difficult times in the past, but we will, and we will have difficult times in the future. It is not the end of violence. It is not the end of lawlessness. And it's not the end of disorder. But the vast majority of white people 
of the vast majority of black people in this country want to live together, want to improve the quality of our life, and want justice for all human beings that abide in our land. With dedicate ourselves to what the Greeks wrote so many years ago, to tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of this world. Let us dedicate ourselves to that and say a prayer for our country and for our people. Thank you very much. So, I thought, I thought that was very interesting because he was in a ghetto, in a black ghetto, basically, and, and these were people who, many of them had probably just completely adored Martin Luther King and looked to him uh, as their saviour, basically. Uh, and yet, Robert Kennedy was able to go down there and get that kind of a response from them, and him a white guy type thing, and this is in 1968, you know? I think that says more about Martin Luther King, and his message was predominantly... Uh, one of peace and the shunning of any kind of violence or retaliation. Yeah, yeah. He, he had to have prepared them for yeah, that. He, yeah. he, he received, he was stabbed once and several bombs were set off at his house and this, that, and the other thing. And he was always very, very strongly against any form of retaliation. I mean, I would list Martin Luther King probably at the top of my list of heroes in the last 100 years. I mean, because, you know, I mean, everyone likes JFK. I don't I don't really find him to be heroic, but that's just me. Um, but if you look at what was done by King, are we talking about, at that time, a black man doing what he did? It, it's, it's even far, If he had been white, it would be less impressive. But, I mean, he was coming from an extremely racist and oppressive area of the country and also the the northern parts were not were not necessarily less racist as he as he wrote and found out and what he achieved in the message that he gave um i think was was very heroic um well that, that's the thing he i mean pretty much bobby kennedy was you know saying the same things yeah. as him and um that was April 4th, I think, uh, 1968. Uh, and two months later, just about two months later, uh, Bobby Kennedy was killed. And, you know, you have to ultimately conclude that these men were killed for the, those kind of things that, that Robert Kennedy was saying there. Yeah. Uh, that's why uh, yeah. they were taken out because, I mean, that's all they, that's generally all they kind of said publicly. That's, Pretty much the same thing. Yeah. Same things over and over again. Peace to peace, the public. Love, compassion, justice. Yeah, I it's mean, just words. At the end of the day, I mean, Martin Luther King didn't hold any titles within the U.S. governing structure. No. On paper, he should be no threat. But obviously, that's not what they're looking. They're they're, they're sensing something else, or yeah. the system, if you want to say, detects something else mm-hmm. that, that kicks it into force. Yeah, and it was in 2000, I think, where they had a trial by jury. Uh, the family. Uh, organized a, a trial, an investigation into the death of Martin Luther King, and a, tri- a jury concluded that he was killed by members of mm, the CIA, basically members of the U.S. Yeah. government. Um, all of the evidence pointed very, very clearly to that. 
uh, again, with Robert Kennedy, all the evidence points directly to, as we've talked about in previous shows, talks uh, points to um, him being killed by the CIA, as with yeah. JFK, obviously. Um, really, when you... And the problem is it isn't just in America. When you, when you, when you look at um, other events around the world, uh, since then, maybe, and even before then, uh, you see the fingerprints of the CIA on the murders of, of other um, kind of leaders of other nations, along with, you know, French, um, particularly in Africa, the French, the British. In Africa, the Belgians, even. Patrice Lumumba yeah. um, had just become prime minister of the newly liberated Congo, Congo from Belgium. Um, he was killed. I mean, he, he was killed. He wasn't this... Uh, a single bullet to the head. He, he was shot by firing squad, but it was a contrived situation where they made it appear he'd been kidnapped, I think, and then uh, tried in secret and eventually sh- shot behind a shed. But here was a guy who um, had, he was very young, he had so much potential, and he'd just become prime minister of a just liberated country, and the CIA. We'll say they were involved, but Pat, Patrice Lumumba was the very first, like you said, he was the very first um, democratic, well, the first prime minister, he was democratically elected of uh, of, the, of the Republic of Congo after it gained its independence from Belgium. And the Belgians had a multi, or a many year, hundreds of years uh, colony, hundreds of year old colony in the Congo. Uh, it started under... Um, one of the Belgian kings, I think his name was Leopold. Leopold, yeah. Um, and it was all about the rubber trade mm-hmm. in those days. And he, the Belgians, were just behaved like complete animals uh, in the Congo while calling the natives animals. But they basically just set up these rubber plantations and became very rich as a result of uh, extracting the rubber from from the Congo. And they forced the natives into essentially slave labour. And any of them that tried to run away or for any um, for any misdemeanors, they usually got their had their arm, uh, their hands or, or their feet cut off. Um, and they're actually that that continued. Um, there are still people alive today who are amputees from from that time when that was going on because it was still going on at the at the beginning of the in the first half of the up the first half of the twentieth century, and um, it was all about enriching themselves from uh, Congolese rubber and it, it, it is known that there was a CIA hitman yeah. in the country at the time absolutely the CIA and, and, and the Brits uh, have even come out and, and, and admitted that they were involved I think the, um, the church committee in the 70s um, revealed that there had been two plots by the CIA to kill Lumumba but said it was not directly involved in the actual murder. Mm-hmm. I mean, so they nicely get a bit of distance, but but they were there. They were there, and uh, the Brits. Yeah, they, they tried, but they didn't succeed. So what you know? Well, he he was actually. This this refers back to one of our previous shows on uh, MK Ultra. Uh, one of the researchers, top researchers in MK Ultra, was Sidney Gottlieb. We talked about that with uh, Hank Alberelli on the show we did with him, and. Um, he actually spoke to Gottlieb, but it was Gottlieb who the CIA had hatched a plan to kill, to kill Lumumba um, by poison toothpaste. And it was Sidney Gottlieb 
of MK Ultra fame, who was tasked with producing the poisoned toothpaste. That, and he actually flew there with it and gave it to uh, the CIA station chief um, in the Republic of Congo to try and get it onto uh, the Mumba's toothbrush somehow or other. But apparently they decided it wasn't a good plan, so they didn't go ahead with it. But the, the Belgians were directly involved in it because the Belgians... I mean, the Belgians supposedly give... This is, this is what happens with all empires, basically, the British Empire uh, in particular... Any colonies that they give up, they give up, uh, they prepare the, the process of giving giving independence to the colony in the form of making sure that after they give nominal independence and allow some local government to form, they are pretty much still in control economically or with their people in place. And if, if it doesn't go that way, that's when you get assassinations. And in this case, you get the very first president. He was only there for like 12 weeks or something before they said he had to yeah. go because he was giving... Um, he was not going to allow uh, the Belgians to have access to to mines in the Congo. He was going to keep it for the for the newly created, the newly liberated country. It was going to be for the wealth of, of the country, and the Belgians wanted to keep a, a hold on essentially what they've had 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 a hold on for hundred or two hundred years beforehand. And um, so they were there. I mean, there's evidence um, that that there were. That Lumumba was kidnapped by and held by white guards, not by black people, mm-hmm. um, not not locals. And he, him, and a couple of other people were taken out, and they were basically shot. They were he was tortured for by by the Belgians, with probably the Belgians, the Brits, and this and the CIA were all involved. He was tortured, and then he was uh, uh, killed by firing squad. Uh, out in, and then, but then they got worried that um, they were going to be exposed over it so they rushed back and they buried his body just in working near where they where he was shot out in the in the woods or um but they got a, they got scared that someone had they there was an allegation or claim that someone had they had been seen uh shooting him so they went back the next day and dug up his body and took it to uh to bury it somewhere else but then they weren't satisfied with that because they were still a bit, you know, concerned about being exposed. So eventually they dug him up again, and uh, and they buried, or sorry, they dissolved his body in sulfuric acid um, to to do the job properly, supposedly the Belgian way. Um, and at, there was a Belgian, there's a member of the Belgian police or whoever uh, who was involved, and he apparently kept a couple of mementos. One of them was a tooth. Um, because that's pretty much all that was left. So he, and he proudly showed his tooth. And this is from, you know, the the, the freedom-loving and also evolved and democratic West Western Europe, you know. Well, uh, this is what they're doing, you know. And the Brits even said, I mean, one of the, uh, what was her name? Um, a former head of uh, MI6. Um, she actually admitted her, her, she's a former head of MI6 called uh, Baroness Park. This is just, um, I think in, in this year, this year, April 2013, in a letter to the London Review of Books, a British parliamentarian, Lord David Lee, reported that he discussed Lumumba's death with Baroness Park, who was the former head of MI6, uh, shortly before she died. Good riddance. Uh, Ding dong. She had been an MI6 officer posted to Leopoldville 
mm-hmm. which is, was the capital at the time. Leop- wow. Leopoldville, <laughs> i.e. the king, they named the, the capital after the, the king of their, <laughs> their imperial masters. Uh, and <clears throat> according to him, this guy who interviewed her, when he mentioned the uproar surrounding Lumumba's abduction and murder, and recalled the theory that MI6 might have had something to do with it, Baroness Park said, we did it. I organized it. So you have basically competing Western intel agencies here all vying for the right to claim that they <clears throat> dissolved the democratically elected leader of the Congo in a vat of acid. Uh, you know, they're, 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 they're bitching at each other. No, I did it. No, we dissolved them. No, we dissolved them. Yeah, and uh, one important point is that Often we focus on CIA because CIA is the intelligence of the dominating empire right now, the USA. Mm. But every empire, every imperialistic uh, group has its own intelligence service, services that do the dirty job, including assassination. To give you an idea of the extent of those kind of uh, actions, between 1963 and 2011, France, a small country, conducted the assassination through its secret services of 21 African presidents. 21 African presidents only conducted by French secret service. And uh, we should not be mistaken here. When a president is pulled down, it's because the president is not serving the imperial interest, which means he's serving the interest of its people. So 21 leaders who try to do good and who get killed. The last one, 2011, uh, Muammar Gaddafi. Mm-hmm. Libya, two years ago, plus uh, the ones that are coming, the ones who don't agree to uh, to follow the imperialistic rules. But the interesting thing is that when you check the General de Gaulle profile, because it, it gives an idea as well how the government agencies and empires interact. Charles de Gaulle election will be helped by the CIA in 1958, because at this time there's a lot of interest in Fran- unrest in France, and socialist powers are about to get elected. Kind of pseudo-communist powers. Front Populaire. Progressive and really pro-people. So they push the De Gaulle envelope, and as usual, with all the, the resources they have, they made him elected. It's 1958. And France is going uh, through this uh, huge crisis I was talking about, decolonization. It's losing its uh, colonies in Africa, particularly Morocco, Tunisia, and Algeria. War is raging. And the goal, first, he's adopting the imperialistic stance. He's fighting to keep the Algerian colony. But finally, he hears reason and wisdom, and he's about to capitulate and negotiate and give freedom to Algeria. And at this time, CIA, realizing that he's changing uh, his political attitude, is about to give power to the Algerian leader, who is a pro-people leader, attempt to assassinate him. And his, his own bodyguard refers to 40 assassination attempts against the goal around the, in the beginning of the 60s, around the time of the end of the Algerian war. So it shows as well that how human beings are only tools for those people. You know, you put a president in power, even powers like France, put it in power because it serves your interest, 
and you assassinate the same person a few years later because he, he doesn't serve your interests anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd like to say something in defense of, of the Belgians. Obviously not all of them were nasty, brutish, psychopathic types. Um, ten years previously, 1950, yes, 1950, the leader of the Belgian Communist Party, Julien Lau, was assassinated, shot, shot dead by two people outside his house. Um, I mean, it was extremely popular. He wouldn't almost certainly have been elected to the new government. Um, the ex- I mean, the, I only heard about this because of the extent of the reaction. There were nationwide strikes. Everything shut down. People were not pleased, to say the least. I mean, it, it had looked at one point there that Belgium, which had been a kingdom, uh, a monarchy until that point, was going to become a republic. Um, it's also a trend that repeats in Europe throughout post-World War II. Um, we, we can probably get into this in terms of the, the system of the empire that, that's left behind, the stay-behind aspect. We see, we've talked about it in Africa. But what people don't realize in Europe is that a very extensive stay-behind network was left behind when the Allies drew their armies back. So you have in Belgium, almost certainly was going to become a communist country. Italy, almost certainly. Greece was a communist country. Many, many others. Very quick, sorry to interrupt. The name of the unit that was in charge of assassinating De Gaulle was Stay Behind. Uh Mm -hmm. Well, it's a concept that's come up again and again and again. It's taken a few decades, but we now have a good idea that the CIA through NATO, which was set up in Belgium, actually, um, created and perpetuated... Okay, some of the units fell out, some had to be renewed, some popped up in different areas, but more or less created a system in every single Western European country of a covert force which could, when necessary, be pulled up to assassinate, to create mock protests, to create false extreme-left terrorist groups that would conduct bombings, um, nearly all of the so-called extreme left terrorist incidents in Europe over the past 40, 50 years, when you look at them, they were actually traced back to these stay-behind networks. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, some of these operations involve the assassination of, of leaders. Mm-hmm. When you think about it, from a just occurred to me now, from an evolutionary perspective, GFK, RFK, Martin Luther King, Julius Caesar, to go back further in history, these are exceptional bloodlines. Those persons are extremely gifted. They have this very combination of higher intellectual capabilities, working capacities, strategists, and, uh, and this empathy, those emotional, those heart qualities. They are both at very high level. So these are somehow the best genetic pools. And they're systematically killed. So it's a kind of uh, mm. <laughs> negative... Uh, genetic selection that they're conducting here. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm hoping we can get into a discussion about that because I, I want to try and understand why. It, it's almost like in this world, in this realm, there is a threshold above which you cannot pass. It just automatically snuffs you out or automatically something mm. kicks in. The machinery works, starts to work. It might miss you first time, second time, but you're doomed. It's called psychopaths. Pretty yeah. much. Yeah. And I think in first analysis, 
we realize that one of the main reasons why those assassinations are conducted is are political, because the leader is actually serving the people and not serving the agenda of the elite. Okay, fair enough. And that's probably one motivator, and sometimes a sole motivator. But I think there's something else going on. As human beings, as soon as we are newborn, we have the models, our parents. We are creatures that are looking up, that are striving permanently for progress, for getting better, getting higher. And we need models to get this inspiration, this deep inspiration to to become better, to get hope, to feel love, to to make progress. And those leaders on a psychological level, on deep psychological level, are the ones who give us this true fundamental positive inspiration. They empower us, they inspire us. They give us guidance and care. They're the true, ideal parents who are able to make better children. And so when the PDBs kill heroes, they kill part of us because we partly identify to them. Not only they kill part of us, but they kill the best part of us. When the assassins kill our heroes, they kill us. Yeah, I think they. Uh, I think that's certainly an aspect of it. To it, there's definitely a, a psychological effect, whether it's intended or not. It's part of the part of the deal. When when someone that uh, a lot of people love gets killed, it's extremely kind of depressing. It's like a it's like a body blow, you know, and it can make people a bit more cynical and, and depressed, and you know, kind of give up hope to a certain extent uh, in in anything good happening. Because I mean. That, that, that's pretty obvious that, that that would happen, you know. And uh, but mm. I think ultimately there's a there's a lesson in it for people that they need to learn. We need to learn as a race, which is that um, is the responsibility of every single person in the world, you know, or every single person whose interests are served by those heroes, to make sure that it doesn't happen. And because people don't don't really take on the responsibility of protecting those who are representing their interests, um, they continue to get killed. So until we, we learn that particular lesson, until we sort of take the responsibility on ourselves to ensure that people who are doing good in the world are not assassinated, and, and, uh, then it's never going to change because ultimately it's our responsibility. I mean, you know, Caesar should not, it should not have been possible. I mean, he was assassinated in a room full of people by a small group. You know, he was assassinated in public. That should simply not have been possible because if those people had realized and recognized their interests, the minute they saw something bad happening, they should have jumped on those guys. And, you know, you sh- you know, you just have to do that kind of stuff. And people have to learn to watch situations like that and, and, and do something proactive about it. And the, I think the reason why the elites struggle so much to rewrite history after the death of one of us here, on one of our heroes. Although the political agenda is neutralized with the death of the hero, they rewrite because they want to erase the psychological bond. They want to kill the source of inspiration. They want to kill this nascent hope in people. They want to kill this idea in people, this dream. I had a dream, this dream of a better world. 
this dream of a just world. You know, there's that, but there's also the practical example that they would not the practical example, but the practical policies that they would that they would put in place that would be difficult then to overturn. I mean, if you if you're uh, some kind of a, a government leader and you use your power to pass laws that directly benefit the population and they become kind of entrenched laws that the people get used to, it's going to be difficult if they've been there for a while to suddenly turn those around again, you know? So from the perspective of the people, of the of the black hats, let's call them, you don't want to even go there. You don't, even, don't want to even have that kind of system set up in particular countries um, because it would be too much, too much. It'll be, it's easier to stop it, to strangle it in its in its cradle type thing before, rather rather than have to deal with it as a as a fully fledged and uh, true. Uh, what I mean is the the political consequences of a hero are easier and quicker to cancel than the psychological consequences. Like let's say uh, Johnson. Less than a month after JFK assassination, he cancelled all the memoranda um, acting the end of the Vietnam War, bringing the boys back. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the political decisions were quickly neutralized. But during the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, even now, you still have mainstream medias bashing JFK and exposing allegedly his womanizing side and his ties with the mafias mm-hmm. because they want also in addition to the political consequences, they want to neutralize the psychological consequences of a hero behavior. Mm-hmm. And they and they have a pretty standard, pretty standard program for it, which is really easy to detect. When suddenly you find <coughs> accusations of some sort of immoral sexual behavior, or misappropriated or you know suspiciously sourced funds mm. then you know exactly what's happening right you know exactly what's happening this is it's a snow job right away i mean you should immediately disbelieve it i mean they 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 know how to push people's moral and ethical buttons and the greed and the sex angle get them every time and people have to learn to immunize themselves against that and one of the things i always maintain is it doesn't matter who the president sleeps with because who he sleeps with has no effect on his decisions in a legal presidential capacity. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if he's gay, straight, polyamorous. It, who cares? That's his private life. Now, of course, you know if he's doing something illegal in his political position, that's a different story. If someone comes along and says, so and such and such a president used his political power to have someone assassinated – uh, like Obama, <laughs> that's a criminal. But if Obama were to like cheat on his wife, I'd say, well, dude, that's, that's messed up. But that has nothing to do with you being a president. Uh, yeah, and uh, also the the dissymmetry, the disproportion. Like for Julius Caesar, he's being accused of being a womanizer. True or false, whatever, it's not a, a major offense. The man but, was a pimp. Uh, this, but, uh, yeah, he <laughs> was charismatic, obviously. At, but at the same time, the one who depicted him as a bad person because of his womanizing streak are the one who passed the law that oppress and destroy millions of lives. You see the, the inversion yeah. of roles? The hero is depicted as negative because of very minor offense and sometimes unfounded. At the same time, the accusers 
present themselves as the yeah, as the I good mean, ones why ask, they why they destroy everything. You gotta ask the question, which is more immoral? <clears throat> killing millions of people or sleeping with millions of women? I mean, I, I could kind of have to say that, you know, in the balance sheet, you know, the mass murder is worse than sort of like, you know, being a slut. Um, there's there are a couple of seemingly innocuous, if you want to say that, cases where there are people who aren't necessarily particularly popular yet, nor are they particularly powerful. And um, there's a recent one, 2003. Um, the Swedish, then Swedish Foreign Minister, Anna Lind. I mean, she, she was like a... The sh- chocolate? Uh, no, that's Lind. <laughs> Lind. I think it's pronounced Lind. L-I-N-D-H. Right. Um, she was out shopping in a store, in a closed store, no bodyguards, because mm-hmm. she's just a normal person. I mean, right. there's no... Well, I, I, have, I have her on my hero or heroine list because in retrospect, we can see things like what she was doing was good and, and the direction she was taking. But, you know, at the time, she's another normal person. And she was knifed to death, supposedly by um, an 18-year-old Serbian, I think, deranged, lone nut. And that, that is what happened. I mean, she was knifed there and then in the store. Uh, yeah, that's, that's the thing, though. It just When you look at who the person was, did it just happen to this person? Oops. Because she was very much against the war in Iraq, she was very much pro-Palestine. It's it's just this coincidences of stances they take in favor of ordinary people right. against the circumstances of their death. Um, Fifteen years before that, the Swedish Prime Minister, I think, was he shot dead on the street? Mm-hmm. And he was he was in office at the time. Um, there was a sim- similar ish situation where he was it became apparent that he was not following the dictates of either the US or the Russians mm-hmm. um, well they have such a long track record of doing this kind of thing that in the modern day in the past 10-15 years uh, they can do it so easily and they're so well versed in how to do it um, yeah. and how to a, a person doesn't have to really you know, step out of line that far before they can say, yeah, you know, let's just take him out, you know, because uh, the, the, he, might, he might he might do some stuff that we don't like, so best yeah. get rid of him, you know. Yeah, and we tend to focus our attention on heroes that display an international dimension because they're more militarized and we know them better, like GFK and, and the likes. But uh, these techniques, assassinations, are very much widespread, and they target only they target a lot of uh, people who simply try to to defend uh, ordinary people. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to be a president to be assassinated. Um, it also means that, in addition to the international heroes, a lot of national heroes that for us don't mean much, but for the people living in this nation or that nation mean a lot mm-hmm. will yeah. be pulled down so on the national yeah. scale mm-hmm. happens what happened happen, the same thing happened as the at the international scale that everybody sees yeah that, that's what I was trying to keep in mind when I was coming up with my list you know the extent of the, the grief for those people although to us it would be like who um, uh, we, we mentioned Lumumba he had a similarity with Gaddafi in that 
there was the kind of a visionary aspect. This for, for them, it was a pan-Africanism. They were not just about help my people. Oh, then I'll feel good. They really, really sought to. They had a global outlook. I think it's that as well. That's another aspect. I mean, if we're talking about psychopaths who feel no empathy, they they can't gauge. Oh, this person must be taken out because they're too empathic. But it, if they get too big for their boots, if they're thinking of others on this kind of um, on a continental scale, and it doesn't fit with the world as they want to see it, mm-hmm. they don't even have to, they don't have to think about it in, in terms of you know empathy or this leader showing empathy. It's it's on a practical level if they don't fall in line with the idea of funneling resources and wealth upwards to the apex of the pyramid mm-hmm. if they, if they start to start if they start to spread it down towards the bottom and and start to make noises that that's what they want to do and that's what should happen etc cetera, etc cetera, then by definition they have more empathy than the average uh, mm. you know banker or um well in practical terms this, corporate. this plan of Gaddafi's to launch a new pan-African currency. Yeah. Um, I mean, that right there was yeah. an absolute no-no. Well, it was independence, economic independence from the, from the World Bank and the IMF and stuff. And that's... An African Union has to be excruciatingly frightening uh, to Europe. Europe, which doesn't really have much in the way of resources anymore and, and does quite a bit, quite a bit of importing, you know? Um <laughs> Not having it's sort of it's sort of like it's it's a George Orwell nineteen eighty four thing with the you know the African African countries being sort of used for resources and, and things like that you know I mean they have to exist there if they get united and get control of their resources I mean that that would be devastating politically to, to Europe yeah at the same time I think a lot of those power struggles transcend national borders and ultimately. It's not uh, really U.S. versus Europe and China. At some level, there are struggles between nations, but at the apex, you have elites, multinational companies, big banks. That pull the strings, and nations are only a relay, and their interests don't have much to do with nations. The goal example is a good example. The CIA is about tried 40 times to assassinate the goal because he was about to give independence to Algeria. So you could think, but they shouldn't have assassinated him. They let Algeria get independent, and then they get the control of the resources, mm-hmm. and they expel the French MNCs. No, he, he, they wanted to keep the Western MNCs that transcend borders. You know, when you see the shareholders, shares repartition, it's a big, wealthy Westerner shareholders that control whatever the, the citizenship. The goal was also wasn't too interested in closing up to NATO, though. Absolutely. Yeah. And that was a, a it went together. They wanted a foothold in Europe, you know. And I mean, France is sure. a major European country, and if it went against this North Atlantic alliance, i.e. the Americans having their, their boots all over Europe, uh, and they saw that as instrumental and fundamental to, to their kind of global policy, and they needed to have a bulwark in Europe and as much of Europe as possible to keep back the colony threat, you know? Mm. Yeah. So the fact that he was not playing that game was also a reason, you know? Yeah, that you have several leaders like that. This scenario replays again and again where the PDBs, via CIA or other agencies, put in power a, a puppet 
but eventually the puppet stop playing the scenario he's supposed to play, mm-hmm. i.e. serving the interest of the, of the elites. That's what happened with Saddam Hussein. He was put into power by, by George Bush Sr. back True. in the 60s, it was? Um, not Bush Sr., but yeah, he, would, he was he helped was into power, for sure, by the CIA. Yeah, maybe it was early. It was with CIA or 60s, like though, yeah. It was 60s, but Bush was involved with the CIA in the 60s. Yeah, yeah he, could have, he could have been there. He Th- was that would make it even more the detailed. The head of the CIA at uh, what time was he the head of the CIA? I don't, I don't remember the date. Yeah. I think in the 70s, before he became vice president then in the 80s, yeah. so 70s. Um, yeah, well, Saddam Hussein, I didn't include him on my list. No. He's definitely not a because hero. Because... He, I mean, he did good things. I don't know. Um, the country did become secular. They did. There was social uplift. Secularism isn't necessarily but, a good thing. Well, it, it in the broad sweep of things, it is. I mean, if 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 the contrast is from the Islam, from the Islam, although it, that's not black and white either, because yeah, if exactly. look at the Iranian Revolution. That was a fundy revolution right. mm-hmm. that actually has it's, softened into a, it's when it's a the, relatively secular It's when it's the Western now. version of fundy Islam that is imposed. That is the option. You know, it's either, you know, and it's, there has been a, a variety of Western fundamental, fundamentalist Islam, which is basically a bunch of actual nutjobs, Muslim uh, radical nutjobs nut who are given money and given weapons and propped, pushed into power. I mean, that option is not a good option. Don't but ever forget that America is under the control of fundamentalist Christianity. I mean, George, w. Bush, George w. Bush sorry, was a fundamentalist w. Christian. W. Oh, yeah. And he even stood up, you know, in front of the people and said that God had called him to do certain things. I mean, he was. I mean, well, America. He said is, that about Iraq. A fundamentalist yeah. Christian country. Well, yeah, but that's the problem. That's what I'm saying. They find ideological kind of commonality with the, with the fundy Muslims, you know, because it's just fundamentalist. It's just yeah. extremist, you know, uh, controlling, dominating outlook on life. But um, yeah, I don't know. Saddam Hussein. The problem with Saddam Hussein is that he. Um, He's been demonized for so long. Mm. For, I mean, for you know, good fifteen years. But the other problem with him is that for a long time he was actually supported, yeah, by the by Western governments. So that kind of tends to well tends to put him in in, in the not so heroic box. Did anybody that they actually for any length of time actually like and support suggests that he's not exactly the mm-hmm. best kind of guy? But he did. I mean, Iraq was before the sanctions. Before the first Gulf War, Iraq was the most advanced yeah. uh, Muslim or Arab, Arab country in, in the Middle East, mm. and um, you know there was a lot of comparatively to, to other countries, there was a lot of uh, freedom for for women. Uh, women held positions in in all aspects of of life, and there was no real, you know, there's no no veiling and all that kind of stuff. So, in that sense, Iraq was a was a good place for anybody to live um, until they decided to bomb the crap out of it and uh, <clears throat> and starve it with sanctions. Yeah, and the so, thing the thing they lynched him on, figuratively speaking, was that he gassed his own people. So that's the mean, part they left out is that the gas was sold to him. No, by, the other so. part they left out was that it was the Iranians yeah. who did it. It wasn't the Iraqis. Mm. I don't know. So I find myself less to, and less interested. <laughs> uh, according to, I mean, that's that's one thing, but that's that's an important point because uh, that is the one thing that when they when they couldn't pin nine uh, eleven, when they couldn't pin weapons of mass destruction, they fell back on he's a bad man, he gassed his own people. That is why they invaded Iraq. It wasn't for you know Operation Iraqi Freedom. It was 
there's a bad guy there, and he gasses his own people. And the gas, the gas, he's a bad guy is a is a personal opinion. Right. And the only piece of fact is he gasses his own people, and that has been proven or at least stated to be to have been false by a CIA operative who was there at the time in the region, and I would, who said that they knew what type of gas was who had what because the Americans sold it to them, and that the, the gas uh, that they used was was a certain type of blood uh, blood agent or there was some technical detail to it and he said that was uh, a gas that the Iranians had not that the Iraqis had and there's all, also other reasons why the Iranians would have bombed that town as opposed to uh, Saddam and I think and then it's interesting sorry Pierre that this week they're falling back on this yes. with with respect to Syria mm, exactly this chemical gas attack oh, he got the, the only that means that the only gas attack of any, of, of any Syria that anyone should be talking seriously about, you need to go back a hundred years when when the Brits nineteen nineteen yeah nineteen twenty the Brits were gassing they were the first ones to do it gassing the Arabs, Arabs. yep and uh, the I, Arab gassers are the Brits not the Arabs themselves yeah and often this uh, pseudo duality. Um, Integrist or religious government versus like or secular Muslim versus Christian are brought up, but they hide the, they hide the only real duality. A regime is either serving its people or it's serving the empire. When the regime is serving the empire, it's labeled bad, it's labeled good, although it's bad, and when it's serving the people, it's labeled good, although it's bad. Yeah, and usually it's destituted bad. and assassinated. It's, uh, this simple somehow. Seeing, yeah. seeing as we're in the Middle East at the moment, what about Rafi Kariri? Hero? Uh, I would say he qualifies as a hero, yeah. Um, Valentine's Day 2005, <clears throat> the Israelis planted a massive bomb in a truck, left a you know, 30 or 40 foot crater in the road that blew up his, uh, his car. And Rafi Kariri was a former... Uh, Lebanese Prime Minister, who at the time was not, but was a major player, and he his uh, focus was on Lebanese society and keeping it kind of independent and keeping it wealthy. And he he was a he was a he had a, a kind of a construction empire, if you want to call it that. He was a very rich man. He was you know a billionaire. But despite that, because most people are billionaires, aren't that uh, truly philanthropic. Uh, he actually was and did a lot for Lebanese society, and he was a kind of a binding force between all the different, the kind of the different factions and also yeah. with the West because he was well respected. Jacques Chirac, actually, he was a good friend of Jacques Chirac and stuff. And so they really saw him as the wrong kind of person. You know, they want to keep it factional and you know um, and religious oriented in in the countries that surround Israel. They want fundies all around them because they can say, look, we're surrounded by fundies. We need to attack these people. They're crazy fundies. You can't have any kind of a... That's one of the reasons for the secularism, particularly in the Middle East. That, that secularism. Any leader that comes up with, listen, we're not going to have religion, Islam as the main focus of life here. If that's a big country in the Middle East, that's bad for the West because the West has pitched their stake on we need to be the police of the world because of the Muslim terror threat. And you have to have Muslim countries and as fundy as possible to justify that threat and justify the expansion around the world and the invasions and all that kind of stuff. And he was, so he was uh, killed most likely 
by Israelis um, because the piece of evidence that a guy actually wrote a book on it, or uh, maybe it was an article, but I think he wrote a book on it as well, uh, was that they had a in his car. He actually part of the protection system in his car was a um, uh, I think it was a radio signal or cell phone signal jamming device <coughs> device specifically to stop the most common type of bombs, which were bombs that were activated by by cell phone. Um, But that was somehow um, overcome. Mm. There was another device that could 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 cancel that out. And people who made the only people in the in the region, or I think actually in the world, who made that particular type of a device that because uh, they 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 found this out by 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 tracking cell phone or microwave communication between cell phone towers, and they realized that there was some kind of interference or jamming going on, and the jamming was being done. The jamming of the jammer was being done by. Uh, uh, a kind of code or a microwave signal that was had been developed by Israeli intelligence. I see. We have a call here. We'll go ahead and take it. Yeah. Hello. Hi, caller. What's your, hi, what's your name? Where are you calling from? Hi, I'm Gary. I'm I'm calling from like the deserts just outside of Tucson, Arizona. Hi, Gary. Hello. Welcome hi, hello. Hi. Uh, so I was thinking about regicide lately, um, mm-hmm. and how. Yeah. It seems like you know more and more we're we're told that that you know we have these artificial kings you know like the king of pop or the, the king of rock and roll right. and how you know there there seems to always be some kind of conspiracy about their their death you know they've got to mm-hmm. they've got to kill these various kings but if you then take a look at at like history how the death of real kings seems to always lead to these sea changes in in history itself, you know, like the death of Julius Caesar takes the Roman Republic from a tiny little republic to a major, you know, almost worldwide network from their point of view. Or, you know, you have the death of, of the King of France, and all of a sudden now we have a change to democracies all over the world. Uh, <clears throat> so is there something about the, the killing of a king, even if it's just, you know, like a popular king, uh, mm. Even like to the point now where like they're 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 going through so many new kings, like just the death of the guy who played Tony Soprano or the the kid yeah. from from Glee, they they just keep going through these these popular kings that they have to kill for some strange possibly occult significance. Um, Th- yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot of there are two things that that pop in my mind. Uh, after listening to your uh, comments, mm-hmm. first, I think that deep inside human beings there is this uh, need for idols and kings and models, and I think mm-hmm. one way the elites used to divert us from a true inspiration coming from a true hero like Julius Caesar mm-hmm. or Kennedy mm-hmm. is to create false idols like the pop uh, TV idols that don't uh, mm-hmm. really carry the true va- inspiring values. And uh, the second point is that there is a, uh, in the dynastic cycle, the sacrif- uh, for millennia in human history, you have this dynastic cycle where the kings, where the rulers are sacrificed, where things turn bad. So maybe mm-hmm. by sacrificing false kings, they try to reduce in human beings this... Uh, 
this desire coming from the unconscious mind to to appease the gods uh, by sacrificing, but this time not to the the people that are really in power, the elites, but uh, scapegoats, i.e. fake kings. These are my two ideas. I have have a slight idea. It's a little bit different. Um, I would would say that kings in general, I mean, the thing is, is, okay, king is a term and emperor is a term and all these different terms that we have. But the truth of the matter is, is a president is a king, okay? It's a single person who all of the people think is in charge, right? And all of their energy and beliefs are, are focused on that person as as their representative on earth, right? And even when you talk about like the king of pop, when you talk about even Elvis or Michael Jackson or John Lennon or or even Kurt Cobain, Kurt Cobain was kind of a king for the youthful generation, these people are kind of focal points of belief and energy and hope even for whatever people put into them. It could be everybody in the world or it could be just a large population. And the idea of then taking that person and killing them is um, – it seems to be less about the sacrifice, but it seems more like a controlling aspect. It's sort of like – a a loss of hope. It's preventing people from getting forward because ultimately, I mean, Martin Luther mm-hmm. King was a king for the black community at that time. And in a certain mm-hmm. sense, maybe even JFK, maybe even RFK were kind of kings in the making for people. And killing mm-hmm. them was all about everybody puts their hope into a single person. And that's that's the intrinsic mm-hmm. behavior of human beings as sort of like a network. They They elect a representative to speak for them. And killing mm-hmm. that person then disturbs and keeps them down. It's like, you know, it's it's really like keeping people in slavery by killing their kings or killing their representatives so that they can never really go forward because in a certain sense that person is kind of like um it's kind of like the engine on a train and all of the people mm-hmm. are everything behind the train. And in order mm-hmm. for the human race to move forward, the king has to be good and whatever and he goes in a direction and he takes the entire people with him. And so ensuring that the king is a bad person or is going to move the race in the direction that whatever force is doing this, and we're talking very abstract and very, very mystical, hypothetical mm-hmm. thing here. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's all about controlling the, the direction of humanity. If, if Caesar had been successful and continued to live, he would have pulled the entire Roman race and probably all the surrounding races, the Greeks and everybody – into a certain direction. The same thing with JFK, the same thing with Martin Luther King, the same thing even with John Lennon. He mm-hmm. would have pulled uh, the youthful generation in a very specific direction and killing them off then mm-hmm. kind of leaves everyone in disarray and then you know, someone else comes along and if he's good and pulls them in the right direction, if it's like Kylie Minogue or Britney Spears or something like that, and they're like, okay, yeah, cool. You know? <laughs> well, I mean, Kylie Minogue is for, for a while... Justin Bieber, you know, I mean, they are kings in a certain sense. Well, There's a large number of people I agree. who have pictures of them on their wall. The problem, think the problem, about them daily. The problem specific, Gary, though, is in terms of your question, it's whether there's any evidence that any of these particular pop idols, let's say, or music idols or movie idols have actually been, or if there's any evidence that they've been, Assassinated. Oh well, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, if they were assassinated. Well, is it more like a matter of the they they killed the pop idol as just a sort of maintenance? You know, that they just have to go through these people just as a way of maintaining the status quo. 
and then when they really want to change things, they've got to kill a genuine leader, you know, like a JFK yeah. or or a Julius <clears throat> Caesar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point, and I think yeah, that's pretty much on 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 song with what what we're saying. Uh, that mm-hmm. does have a psychological effect, and that when that happens, some you know somebody else steps in and uh, you know puts on a show of being the new the new idol or the new leader, but they're not. They don't have any substance mm-hmm. to them, you know. Yeah, it's all appearance, mm-hmm. and no. There, there, there's a saying, you know, you 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 build people up to knock them down. You know, there's mm-hmm. kind of a there's kind of a it's kind of the people's fault as well in a way because we we kind of agree to partake in the contract, you know, of, of, in some cases making an idol of someone who was not really deserving of it, and mm-hmm. then. They're knocked down, so they're 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 sort of sacrificed, so in, in, so to speak. Yeah, there's a saying that goes there like that, that in the in the Roman Empire. The saying goes like, "The Tarpeian Rock is close to the Capitol. Tarpeian Rock is where they were this cliff where they were throwing rulers from to sacrifice them, and the Capitol was where the rulers ruling. Mm. It means it was intrinsically part of the cycle and of the rules." that the rulers eventually would be sacrificed. That's the dynastic cycle. I think people and this dynastic cycle ended when the mandate of heaven, when the divine rights of the ruler of the king was ending and uh, the end of the mandate of heaven was shown by the cosmic wrath, uh, the, the, the God's wrath, the cosmic calamities. I think right now, people sense since the elites have put in power all their fake kings, their bad kings, the world is going really mm-hmm. bad, and it probably triggers some negative cosmic reactions. Mm-hmm. People sense that we are reaching the end of the dynastic cycle, and the logical conclusion to a dynastic cycle is the sacrifice of the kings. So since they don't have mm-hmm. any good kings anymore to sacrifice, since they replace all of them with their evil puppets, they have to sacrifice fake kings. So pop kings, soccer players. When you, I recently checked a, a top ten of the most popular pe- contemporary people in the world, and the list is pathetic. The, the, those people are, have no substance. When you compare with true heroes, they give no inspiration, no love, no compassion, no, no intelligence. <coughs> they don't bring you up. They don't inspire you. Mm. Okay, Gary. Uh, thanks for your call. Yeah. yeah, thanks for your That's... time, and love your show. Keep on, rock oh. on. All right, thank you. Thank you, Gary. Right. Thank, you, right. Gary. thank you, Bye-bye. I, I, think that the... I think he brings in an interesting point, well, uh, an interesting few other things to look at, because uh, although you're saying there are all these people who are, they've been lionized, they've been made into heroes who are not deserving of it, well, uh, at the end of the day, they, they, do, they draw their source from the people. So if you take Michael Jackson, for example, right. it's not so much that, oh, he's a fake hero put on the people. It, his his popularity must come from the people. Mm-hmm. I think there's, it's not black and white. There's both. There are John Lennon, there are very good well, yeah, singers. Artists. John Lennon, there's an explicit case where he was taken out. Yeah. Uh, but he wasn't taken out because he was a popular hero necessarily. It was political you know, because he was similar to Michael Jackson, let's say, and later, but because of what he, he was using... He was politicizing his music. His yeah, music. but he was using his popularity. True. Yeah. Exactly. So it's not black and white. You have 
some true heroes in this pop world or this uh, entertainment world or some heroes that display some genuine hero qualities. At the same time, a lot of heroes are manufactured artificially by medias. And people, they adopt heroes that they can have access to. If you have a, an individual star, quote-unquote, permanently displayed on, a, on TV shows and radio waves, mm. and this person would be, become a heroic, yeah, even I if mean, he doesn't have the qualities. I think that there's, there's, first of all, I think that there's no real metaphysical distinction between uh, a hero or a president or a king in, the, in a political sense and in a, a, a hero or a king of, of stardom. I don't think that there's a metaphysical difference between them. Because uh, being a hero and being, um, what would be the word, politically influential is all about your your ability to uh, persuade and motivate the minds of people with what you say. So if you're a big star, I mean, if you're like John Lennon, for example, John Lennon was basically, he was a king of pop, and he was a king of popular music at the time. Oh, yeah. But his rhetoric was also very positive and very people-oriented, right? And so in a certain sense, without being a politician, he was still able to be politically motivating to the people. He was able to tell them things about uh, how they should think about the world and you know peace and blah 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 and such and such, and so he was the equivalent of you know a political leader in a certain sense because he can he didn't control the mind but he influenced or had the ability with his words yeah. to influence the mind and so does any other star. If a movie star came up and he played in a whole bunch of movies, a box office draw, everybody loved him, great, and then all of a sudden he went on TV and said, you know what, people. We need to start thinking about peace, and your leaders are lying to you. You'd be like, oh, this guy is awesome. He's great. Because they don't do that, they're just like Obama. Obama's an asshole. Exactly. They're, they're, they're not. He's the president, but he is, he's an evil bastard. Well, it's like, like I was saying about the, you know? about the Pope's visit to, uh, to Brazil there a few months ago <clears throat> and all those screaming hordes of yeah. young people. They were like, when, I, when, I first saw, yeah, when I first saw it, I said, is that a Justin Bieber concert? Yeah. <laughs> and Justin Bieber looks old. <laughs> why are you wearing that white? Oh, yeah, it's the Pope. Pope. Uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, that John, go on. Like John Lennon was taken out because he was, because of what he was saying, and because he cared enough about these issues to actually, and he figured, hey, people listen to me, I've got something I want to say, but, and I'm not going to shut up about it. So many other people are in a similar position as he, in terms of influence, as he was. Uh, and, and greater influence, but they just don't... They, they don't have anything maybe, to say. They care, well, they don't have anything to say. They care, care more about their... For example, a small example, like the Dixie Chicks. Mm. Look at the Dixie Chicks. I mean, they weren't worldwide popular, but they were quite popular in the US, still are. Um, and they came out in 2003 against the Iraq War and said they were ashamed that Bush was from Texas, even though he's not really. He's not but, from Texas. He's yeah. from Martha's Vineyard. Exactly, but, you know, that he lived there. We're ashamed that he lives here. Get him out of here, you know? Mm. And they got so much... Shit for that. They got death threats. Yeah, they got death threats. And a lot of it was manufactured. You know, all yeah. the radio stations were out against them and stuff and wouldn't yeah. play their music and would totally unpatriotic and stuff. I mean, so you can see that maybe times were different uh, in John Lennon's time compared to today. You know, maybe right. in those, you know, 30 years or, or or more, things have changed a lot. And if you try and do what he did today, well, yeah, you just you just won't get the exposure. They'll say, okay, listen, you have a lot of exposure. You're popular. You get on the radio station and you're on all the TV shows. Guess what? You're not anymore. Or yeah, maybe make you disappear. Maybe the machine that's been built up yes. controls it. Yes, you know, that's what's know. changed. I yeah. think you still find 
a significant, well, I don't know, but, a majority, hopefully a, a large chunk of people who would have been behind their statements. And that's why and there's, such a, there's such a work to get control of things like YouTube and Vimeo and stuff like that right now, because all of a sudden it becomes a distribution medium that anybody can say to, because if, say, for instance, the Dixie Chicks were to come out and say a bunch of stuff and people were to say, well, we won't play on the radio, they say, that's okay, we'll do YouTube videos, people can still watch us. And uh, there are several processes going on to... Uh, make sure that the heroes, legitimate or not, don't say anything that doesn't serve the agenda of the elites. And remember in this top 10 of the most popular living person in the world, you have three or four soccer players. Mm. Yeah. Soccer, the most mediatized sport, those heroes, quote-unquote, don't even talk. Yep. We no. today, yep. the most popular heroes in our degenerating civilizations do not talk. <laughs> they run around. They have no field. message. They, really they run around a field in their underwear, kicking a pig's bladder, and, and then they start hugging each other and taking a shirt. It's a bit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, obviously, you have to realize that there is a large section of the population which are completely devoid of any political thought whatsoever. I mean, <laughs> I mean mm. Adolf Hitler could come back to life and take over the entire world, and these people would say, "Hmm, Sig Heil, excellent." Yes, the next football game. Because they have no political thought. I mean, it, it yeah. just would never occur to them to even think that there's an ethical question or a moral question about some political thing. That's an important point. I think a lot of people are like empty, empty vessels. It's not negative. It's just uh, they don't have made up their mind and that can be influenced. Which, and that's why. Yeah, and that actually creates a need for leaders because you don't have leaders of this type or heroes or people who have that substance, whatever it is, that these pe- that led these people to to, ri- to rise up to a position of power and to, to want to do something beneficial. Not everybody has that. There are very few. Most people don't have that, but they look to be. They can be swayed by people like that. And that's why it's all the worse when they're taken out because there's so few of them. And what you're left with is soccer players and people who will follow soccer players until the day they die and, and cry about them. And they don't score goals. It means heroes have the potential to control this party, the thoughts and the behavior of maybe 90% of the population. Mm-hmm. People who who are receptive, let's say, let's put it this way. If they are subjected to a positive inspiration, positive heroes, they will suck in, pump in this inspiration and conform partly to this model. Right. But today they are confronted to negative or empty heroes, empty psychopathic uh, heroes, and they suck in, well, they get inspiration from those heroes that don't make them better. Humanity is a social animal, and I sometimes think that we don't really think about the repercussions of that, especially because we have this kind of philosophy of individualism. But Ultimately, humanity is predominantly a social animal, and, and the great trend of all social animals in the animal kingdom, which is that the large body of them are kind of like worker bees in a certain sense, and that's not a negative thing. I mean, the large body of people are, you know, for all the purposes, the proletariat. Um, they are kind of a working class uh, of human, and they need and do require leadership or people to to go out and, and work in the field of leadership and they need they need a queen bee in a certain sense. And Julius Caesar is a good example showing how a good leader can transcend human beings for the best. Mm. When you see the deeds of his legions that were made of 
normal human beings initially, after years of bonding, exchange, learning from this great example. They were united by a cohesive religion, Mithraism as well. And all that added led to a synergetic social body group where the total impact was much more than the sum of its part. Mm-hmm. And this kind of thing is the great fear that they have today. I mean, I would say right now the the, the great fear in Africa and, and especially the Middle East is the possibility of someone like a Gandhi or a Martin Luther King kind of raising up, somebody who would would uh, speak with a peaceful philosophy. It would be very, very difficult for them. Yeah, they're active, they actively have been for many years actively supporting anybody right. who, who showed any hint of, of, a coming, of coming coming to the forefront. And Well, this is why they do false flag operations, too. Yeah, and uh, I mean, it, they have it so locked down at this stage, but they have to maintain it all the time. They have right. to keep up with it and keep, keep tinkering away and assassinating here and there and, you yeah. know, inciting... You know, violence here, planting bombs there, that kind of thing. They have to stay, they have to manage it. You know, it takes a lot of uh, energy and effort, but they're for, but some, for, some, for some reason they're, they're willing to put the effort into it, and it is an awful lot of effort. You know, because right. the, what they're putting so much effort into stopping a natural function of human society, which is, to, generally speaking, for most of the population, is to live in peace. Mm, right. To just get on with your life and live yeah. in peace. There's more. There's more than enough stuff going on, going on for any group of people in a, in a small society or whatever size society in terms of interaction and stimulation and stuff to keep them happy, you know? Uh, the average person of which, let's say it's 99% or something like that, well, maybe a bit less, let's say 94%, Alan Lobachevsky, but the vast majority of people have more than enough in, in, in terms of human normal human life and normal human interactions to, to keep them happy, you know? Well, and that is- can be quite a broad scope of things, you know what I mean? But it's... Who, who among them want to want to go and you know invade other countries right. and stuff and and, right. and let's all go and invade that other town over there? Yeah, sure. Half of us might not come back, but you know, and you might or you might come back with a few limbs less. But do you fancy it? Uh, no, I want to watch TV tonight. What's wrong with you? You want me to go and get my leg chopped off for what? Yeah, there's an inherent ridiculousness because if you think about it, with natural disasters and d- disease and just everyday accidents. There are so many ways right now in the world to die, you know, getting hit by a car, falling off a roof while you're cleaning some gutters or something. I mean, you know, (laughs) falling in in the bathtub. So many ways, diseases, whatever. And to add to that is just completely and totally insane. It is such a useless and futile exercise. But then we're faced also with the problem, the evidence, the fact that throughout, you know, even just modern history, they have, someone has been able to whip up large numbers of people to run off and fight against some enemy and die in their millions and think it was a good thing. So, like what I just said, obviously it's not the full story. There is some mechanism within human beings that that you can whip them up to to get out of their nice, comfortable lives and take off and maybe not come back. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, that's maybe for another discussion, but it's obviously a part of, you know, it's and whipping up emotions and uh, it's changing, fear, though. mainly. It's becoming more dangerous. I mean, that's why, that's why they have these drones now, you know, because it really is becoming a little bit more difficult because the globalization of the world with the Internet and all these different forms of communication is bringing people a lot closer. It's making the world a lot smaller than it used to be. 
and people are starting to see kind of the ridiculousness of, of, of nationalism and national borders. Because, I mean, you go online and you talk to people from 10 different countries and you have them on your Facebook and, oh, and you see pictures of what their house is like and everything. I mean, you start to get a real feeling that there's this gigantic global community that, despite a great physical distance, is actually immediately close because of the Internet. Yeah, so and it breaks down stereotypes and, and yeah, lies and disinformation you, about all the races and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, you start to realize that they're people, you know. And they want the same thing as you. And they want the same thing as you. And so that's why they have like these drones and this more mechanized army and you know sort of satellites and Star Wars program because they need to find those those few people that six percent of the population who will be happy jockeying a chair with a joystick and going around killing you know lots and lots of people and they need that kind of thing because there's just nobody really wants to kill anybody anymore because they start to realize that it's more fun to sit at home and play Xbox. It's as banal as that sounds to most people, actually. I mean, Xbox is kind of fun, and there are probably some people where that's a great expression of their uh, of, of their existence. There's, there's a guy, apparently, who now gets paid money. He gets paid like 60,000 pounds a year to, to beat record scores on, on like Xbox 360 or something like that. He, he makes money. It's a job for this guy to play video games. So it's, it's, it's really quite cool. And, and and that is perfectly fine, but that's what people want to do. They and it's not a bread and circuses kind of thing. It's not a denigrating thing. There's nothing wrong with that. Hmm. Um, people although, just want to live their lives, like Joe was saying. They just want to live their lives. Although kids should get out and play in the fields now again. <laughs> well, I mean that's that's from our generation, and maybe yeah, there's nothing I, wrong with <clears throat> this new generation. A bit of nature. No. Now and yeah. again. And uh, what's tricky? Uh, I understand your example. Uh, I agree. But what's tricky is uh, when you see that. Uh, video games on the rise, particularly first-person shooter, that are a way to desensitize human beings as yeah, far as yeah. the except, killing act is concerned. Except first-person shooters are my favorite type of game and the one that I've played the most, so I, you must be saying here that I'm going to turn out to be some sort of mass murderer. No, I, I ended no. up my sentence with, to some extent. <laughs> to some extent, you know. The military I mean? does finance those things, though, as a, as a, as a way to kind of... Recruitment, grab? As a recruitment, as a... It's not, right, I'm not saying it's, it's going to make, turn people into assassins okay. or whatever, but that it's kind okay, of like... And hey, you, you can, can do this from... Cowboy and Indians with, you know, arrows and yeah. stuff like that, I mean... I mean well, but they come along, they use it, paintball and they use it, they, they, they promote them, they, they actually fund them, and then they they keep track of people who buy them and, and their age ages and stuff, and then go to them and say, hey, I see, you know, and then slip in the idea that, you know, you, you like games and stuff, you like first person shooters, if you play this game, stuff, you know, yeah. yeah, it's really cool. You know, you can do that, and then say, you can do that in real life, you know. You know how much you enjoy playing first person shooters? You can actually have that fun, but with the extra... Bonus of it no, being real. Right. So. That's what they say to them. That's I'm what these sure, recruiters I'm go sure, around and I'm say sure. to them. It's not true, but that's sure. what they say. I'm sure, but but a person who wants to shoot people for real wants to shoot people real because they're messed up, not because they play video games. Well, you know? yeah. also have to they don't know about it. They find out like 35 to 40 percent of them that come back from Iraq find out too late. Yeah, yeah. That they don't really, they want, don't to really want to do it. Exactly. But too late. Yeah. Um, Maybe I have a, a little story for you. Um, it relates to French history, contemporary. So we are in 1986. 1986 is uh, more than 20 years ago. In 1986, in France, you have a hero, a genuine hero, you know, called Coluche. This guy is a humorist, an actor. A comedian? A comedian, yeah. He's extremely popular. He's the most popular person in France. According to polls, he's the, the most loved person. Mm-hmm. And uh, he gets the, the Oscar, Prince Oscar, for best actor, he's doing concert and uh, they're all the, it's full, the, 
the concert rooms are full and his TV shows are super popular. And uh, back in 1981, as a joke, he said, well, I'm going to go for presidential elections. And uh, the polls gave him 16% vote, vote intentions. And then he started to receive death threats, bullets in mail, and uh, mm. so he removed his uh, candidacy. So fast forward 1986, Coluche, seeing that uh, France, like other Western countries, had more and more poor people, opened what he called the heart restaurants, restaurants for free, right. for the poor people. In three months, he fed one million people. Problem is that... Uh, Coluche, like the other heroes we're talking about, like John Lennon, was very popular. And in addition, and as a very good, bad combination if we want to live long, in addition to being popular, he was starting to become politic, and politic in the social sense of the term. So he started those hot restaurants. And in addition, he was starting to expose the politician corruptions, the nonsense. He was showing that you can feed all the poor people. Look, in three months, we're feeding all of them without funding, without public funding. What have the politicians have been doing? for decades and uh, well you can expect uh, concerning the end of the story on the 30th of june 1986 coluche was riding his motorbike slowly on a small road in southern france at 50 km an hour he was about to cross the truck and just when he crossed the truck the truck changed lane and there was a collision face to face and he died during this collision this crash and uh, the media covered up and uh, and uh, invoked uh, and started to twist the story that he was riding very fast and that the truck driver was going to deliver some stuff. Um, so you're suggesting it was a deliberate? Oh yeah, but, uh, yeah. I can give more data, but uh, since it's not a very well-known case, I didn't want to elaborate. Yeah, after some inquiries, they discovered that the the, the official story was saying he was riding very fast. And uh, that the truck was about, after a curve, was about to turn, to cross the road and to enter in a camping to make a delivery. It was summer in southern France. And uh, actually, when the inquiry was properly done, they discovered that the truck didn't use the indicator, that Coluche was not riding fast because his two colleagues showed he was not uh, insane, testified he was not uh, riding fast, there was no braking marks. Uh, the road was not curvy, it was a straight uh, line. And the truck was not delivering anything at the camping. His load was full of waste that he picked up from the local gendarmerie, mm -hmm. from the police station. And where it turned, actually, it's not a, a dump area mm -hmm. for waste. It's not a camping. It's an agriculture field, a farming field. And actually, to reach this field, you have to drive over a pipe that doesn't resist to five tons, or five tons maximum. And the truck was 40 tons. Mm -hmm. So it was not turning, so... <clears throat> Once again, it shows how uh, the elites are afraid of those people who are human, that other people love, and that have a message, a positive message, a social message mm -hmm. to communicate. And those heroes don't live long. <coughs> but for for many years, for many years during the Cold War, that social message that using him as an example of, for example, feeding poor people, that repeatedly all over the world examples of that type of attitude by any one any one person or one group or a, a political party uh, anywhere in the world particularly obviously in the outside of the soviet union but 
in, in, in Europe and in Asia, uh, that was called communism by the Americans and the Brits, etc. And it had to be fought against. And the leader or political party that was proposing those kind of things were denounced as, you know, the, the, the evil commie red threat that had to be, you know, had to be extinguished. Um, and it, it kind of gets back to um, what Neil was saying earlier on about those stay-behind groups in the, in Europe that were left. That's what they did. For example, in, in Italy, uh, there was a political <coughs> a president, a prime, president or prime minister, Aldo Moro. He, he actually was he was out of power at the time. He had, had been. He in had power, been yeah. Italy's longest-serving prime minister mm-hmm. at the at the time. He was sort of like an elder statesman, mm-hmm. um, and he was the inspiration for a big move mm-hmm. that would have changed the landscape in the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he wanted to basically integrate all of the political parties. Well, uh, or, or, what, what he had already done a few years earlier was bring in the Italian Socialist Party. Mm-hmm. His his background, he was the Prime Minister and head of the, the Christian Democrats. Christian Democrats. So they were a mainstream centre mm-hmm. party. But um, he realised because of the political he, he realised because of environment of yeah, the day that he had to it, it, Italy couldn't get a government going for more than twelve months. It was yeah. ridiculous, and they'd had recent elections. A third of the voting population voted for the Communist Party something that happened again and again in post-war Italy. And this time you had leaders that said, you know what, we really need to just bring them on board. So he's going to bring the Communist stupid. Party into power. Yeah, basically. Actually, there's a there's, there's a, something I was reading about, about him five years, uh, I think four years before his death, his murder. Uh, he was in the U.S. I think this was when he was a prime minister and he, uh, he met with the then U.S. Secretary of State Kissinger. Henry Kissinger, your mm-hmm. friend and mine. And apparently Kissinger told him, uh, you must abandon your policy of bringing all political forces in your country into direct collaboration or you will pay dearly for it. And four, four years later he was murdered. And he was, so the idea, but the, the, it gets back to what you were saying about the stay behind networks that they call, they call themselves the Red Brigades in Italy. Mm. But it basically was a, they were nominally communist, but they were infiltrated very quickly, and the leaders were actually, I think the leaders were um, kicked out by some a CIA uh, yeah, gang the, the original, infiltrated. The original group was ideological. Yes. The the intelligence, the actual people who were behind their, their ideology were all rounded up and arrested. What you were left with were the militants, nearly all of whom were police informants mm-hmm. or working directly for Italian intelligence. And there's a double twist in the Aldo Moro story. First, they removed Aldo Moro, who was a progressist, a socialist, and in a, at the same time, they blamed the Red Brigade, a communist or extreme left groupuscule, allegedly, and thus depicted the leftist forces in a negative way. Yeah, well, it was absurd on the face of it. And it was. I'm surprised that um, it, they managed to fly this one at the time because. Yeah. What was going on? They were trying to bring in the so-called extreme left, and then what? An extreme left faction sabotages the whole thing. Exactly. It was, it the was way they, they rationalized it, saying, "Yeah, there were dissension. We did uh, the leftist movement, and Aldo Moro was not uh, collinear with the ideology of the Red Brigade. It was total BS." But people, some people believe it. But and at the time, official history now. At the time, the, the U.S. <coughs> denounced his attempt to bring the communists into a power-sharing government, but the, the Soviet Union denounced him as well also for doing that. So, I mean, yeah. where does that leave you, you know? Yeah. So, well, 
yeah, because the because the Italian Communist Party had broken links at this time. Yeah. With because because actually, they weren't really communists. Exactly, the whole idea of communist means nothing. Communist simply means no fascism, yeah. basically, no corporatocracy, no elite. They, they had a program of social reform. That's pretty much uh, all. The same demand they had since the end of the Second World War. And this is what the U.S. throughout the whole Cold War was fighting against, <clears throat> was people all over the world, uh, much of which was colonized either by the U.S. or the Brits or the French, in those countries, in those colonies, saying, hang on a minute, <clears throat> we want some we, of that peace and we freedom want too. Some, we want some we want piece of the pie, basically. We want, you know, we want some wealth, etc. That you're stealing, you know, and in Vietnam and in, um, in 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 that part of Asia, in Malaysia, throughout the 50s, 60s, 70s, all of that was about resources. It was about tin, rubber, you know, in some cases uh, oil, but it was all about raw materials, access to raw materials that the col- that the former uh, colonial masters. Had been having had been had had access to for 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 in some cases hundreds of years, and because of I mean generally a lot of it started with the communist revolution or the the, the revolution in Russia because <clears throat> that actually inspired the whole like you know Marxism inspired people all over the world kind of just after the turn of the 20th century inspired people to with this idea I mean the idea that there was this communist threat, this communist ideology that was infecting the minds of all these people in the West had to stand against it because it was just evil and horrible. It was just nonsense. People were just picking up ideas and forming groups that held to this idea of social equality. That's all it was. It was social, they wanted social equality, and they weren't, but they were labeled as communists across the board and stamped out uh, with that with that really you know um, childish kind of a description of, of what they were doing. You know. Yeah, because there's a guy actually that I was researching as well. He was, his name's Alan Lawrence Pope, and he's he, he's still alive. He's a retired U.S. military uh, aviator, and he was involved in. Uh, he basically dropped bombs in Asia uh, uh, from an American a CIA plane. He was a kind of he worked for the CIA. He was originally an aviator, and then he got drafted into the CIA and covert missions and stuff. Alan Lawrence Pope, Alan Lawrence Pope, and he. Uh, so he dropped bombs on lots of different parts of um, Malaysian, Indonesian, uh, Indonesia and Malaysia, etc. And in later life, he actually said, because um, he, he was he was caught, and the the Americans actually got him out of there by putting on some pressure because he was going to be, because he's just been flying around dropping bombs on us and people in villages and stuff. And he said, I enjoyed killing communists. Um, and he lamented, they said that Indonesia was a failure. But he said, we knocked the shit out of them. We killed thousands of communists, even though half of them probably didn't even know what a communist meant. And that's, that, that kind of sums up the Cold War, you know, in terms of the U.S. and the Western powers' yeah. invasions of other countries. They were dropping bombs on people who had no idea what communism meant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, all, the, 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 the leader of the revolution in Vietnam, Ho Chi Minh, so he's the big bad guy in the Vietnamese War, I mean, his, if you read what he was saying, he said, I want to set up in Vietnam, I want to follow the model set by the United States of America. He wrote, he drafted the Declaration of Independence that basically copied yeah. the U.S. Declaration of Independence. Damn commie. And he's portrayed as a communist. Of course, because most Vietnamese have no idea what he's talking about. You're not even about. allowed to replicate West. Those, those natives, those lesser under, under, undermensch, in, in those colonies were not even allowed to try and replicate 
what was the societies in the other structures, the political structure, the social structure in the West, their job was to be colonies and uh-huh. client states and do what they were told, which was just open your natural resources and everything else to the West and shut up. Uh-huh. And the 50s and to a lesser extent the 60s was a very interesting period politically, <clears throat> especially in Europe and colonies, because while in Russia the socialist train had been derailed with Stalin, those ideas were very much alive in Europe, Asia, and Africa, because the concept is appealing to any human beings with a conscience, equality. And the 50s was an opportunity because during the Second World War, in Europe in particular, the leaders had been exposed because of collaboration with the Nazi forces. So they had lost all legitimacy. So political vacuum appeared and opportunities arise for true leaders who had shown their values during the war by joining and leading the resistance movement. So on one side, you had a renewal of leaders with a lot of potentially good leaders. And on the people's side, you had the shock of the war where people realized all the horror of war and went back to the basic and realized how important it was to share, how important it was to help the, the weaker ones, the poor. And that's during those few years that most of the social reforms were conducted in Europe and where true communist or true socialist movements started to emerge. But soon, too soon, those movements started to be infiltrated, co-opted, assassination were conducted, and uh, finally didn't lead to the reforms and to the peaceful, positive revolution that we could have hoped for. Mm. Um, someone else that I've that comes on my radar when talking about this topic is uh, Benazir Bhutto, who was assassinated in Pakistan in 2007. She was the uh, former uh, Prime Minister of Pakistan on on two occasions, and then she got uh, kind of booted out. Um, she was booted out in, in a coup d'état, by pretty, sure much, pretty much, yeah. And um, but her father was uh, he was the founder of the uh, Pakistan. The PPP, the Pakistan Political Party, I think it was called, or P- Pakistan People's Party, um, and he was basically he, he was a, a reformer, a, a kind of dynasty of reformers, basically. Yeah. yeah, and um, he was, you know, removed from his position as as prime minister on on trumped up charges, uh, and he was killed. He was hung by a kind of Western backed military dictatorship that came in. That was in. Um, 1979, right around the time of the whole, you know, Afghanistan, uh, Soviet war in Afghanistan and the Taliban and the creation of Al-Qaeda and stuff, uh, and Pakistan's right on Afghanistan's border. And um, so when he was hung, his family and all his children were put on house, under house arrest, including Benazir. And uh, that's when General Zia, who looks like a baddie out of a James Bond movie, and he really was a, a an evil person, uh, he was basically the West man as well. Um, in, in the following years, <clears throat> she got released from house arrest after, after six years, her and her family. But then they, in 1985 and then 19, I think 84, 85 and 86, her two brothers were assassinated essentially by the, the Pakistani elite as well. Um, and 
she had just and after she went into exile after her last term in Dubai, but she was still leader of this of the opposition. And she, her 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 ticket was basically reform of Pakistan society, get rid of the, the kind of corrupt elite, you know, give more rights to women, etc. The normal stuff that that uh, ordinary people would would appreciate in any society. And <clears throat> so she was in Dubai, but then she came back in. 1980, uh, 2006 or, or 2000, 2004, 2005, she came back from Dubai and she kind of began to have negotiations with then Musharraf for a power sharing kind of a, um, government because elections were coming up. And then in 2007, as she was kind of campaigning in December 2007, when she was campaigning, she was on top of a car, you know, and it was an open top kind of car, a car with a platform on top of it. <clears throat> and there was a lot of crowd of people, all people, crowds of people I've been mean, following her around for a long time. And somebody stepped out of the crowd and fired two or three shots, shot her, and then a bomb went off. They claimed it was a suicide bomber, but there's no evidence for it being a suicide bomber. Any bomb that goes off anywhere in the Middle East or anywhere else, almost in that side of the world, it's a suicide bomber. Has to be some guy blowing stuff up. It's kind of ridiculous at this stage, but yeah. apparently, <clears throat> apparently they don't have the ability to put a bomb down and, uh, on the road. They have, to, they have to, yeah, they have to strap it to themselves, you know. But that fits into the agenda, you know. Crazy Arab Muslim terrorists—they just want to blow themselves up too, you know. Yeah. So, um, and they don't know how to plant a bomb as opposed to be a bomb. So, the bomb was as a kind of cover to let the guy escape, you know, because obviously the bomb killed twenty people. But so she was assassinated. But there's a little audio I want to uh, play a clip of here to give you, apart from her social reform, etc., and her history as a kind of family dynasty of reformers in uh, in Pakistan. There's a little clip here that I want to play for you that might give you another idea of uh, why <clears throat> why she was an enemy, particularly of the West. There was one report that said that you had arranged to send President Musharraf a letter to be sent in the event of your death by assassination, urging him to investigate certain individuals in his government. Is that true? Yes, it is true that I wrote to General Musharraf. I received um, information from uh, General Musharraf that a friendly country had passed on to them the information that I could be attacked by a gang from the Afghan uh, warlord Baitullah Massoud or by um, Hamza bin Laden, the son of Osama bin Laden or by the Pakistani Taliban in Islamabad or by a group in Karachi. So I sent back a letter saying that while these groups may be used, I thought it was more <coughs> important to go after the people who supported them, who organized them, who could possibly be uh, the financiers or the organizers of the finance for those groups, and I named three individuals who I thought were their sympathizers. Now I understand that I could be wrong and my suspicions could be misplaced, but these are the people that I suspect want to stop the restoration of democracy. They want to stop my return because they know in 1993, when Pakistan was on the brink of being declared a terrorist state, I stopped the rise of terrorism, and they know that I can do it again. So I feel that these are the forces that really want to stop not just me, but the democratic process and the will of the people from triumphing. And uh, in terms of these three people that uh, 
you mentioned, um, were, they, were they members of or associated with the government? Yes, well, one of them is um, a very key figure in security. He's a former military officer. He is someone that um, has had dealings with um, Jaish Muhammad, one of the banned groups, with Maulana Azhar, who was in an Indian jail for decapitating three British uh, tourists and three American tourists. And uh, he also had dealings with uh, Omar Sheikh, the man who murdered uh, Osama bin Laden. Now I know that having dealings with people uh, does not necessarily mean direct evidence, but I also know that internal security has totally collapsed in Pakistan and that internal security cannot collapse uh, without there being some blind eye, if not collusion, being turned to the rise of the militants and militancy. Not only are our tribal areas out of our control, but even the beautiful valley of Swat is now under takeover by Islamists. So I would like to see a park-led police inquiry assisted by Scotland Yard or the FBI come in, use their forensic and scientific explanation to find out not only the perpetrators, but the financers and the organizers of this heinous crime that killed 158 innocent people. So <clears throat> there are a few things there. Um, one of them being that you want to get rid of terrorism and terrorists in Pakistan. That's a big no-no. Um, she, but there was also a little um, comment in the middle that she kind of let let yeah let slip. I actually have a little clip of it. Here. And uh, he also had dealings with uh, Omar Sheikh, the man who murdered uh, Osama bin Laden. Hang on a minute. This I, is 2007, five months before she was assassinated. I thought Obama, threw those Navy SEALs, murdered Osama bin Laden. In 2011. And then they threw his body into the sea. For the fishes. <clears throat> yeah. So that's an interesting little piece of information that she gave out there, that this guy, Khalid Sheikh, Sheikh Mohammed, who was implicated in 9-11, is a guy who was water, waterboarded 279 times. And uh, and said that he was uh, born in the purple dinosaur afterwards. <coughs> he remember, literally confessed to every conspiracy. Member of Al Qaeda. Well, wouldn't you if you'd been waterboarded 275 times? But uh, yeah, so he says that he killed him, and he was arrested in two, uh, not long after in 2003, I think, uh, in Pakistan. So if he and then he was in custody. Who? Uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Oh was in custody, and this is the guy that she says killed Osama bin Laden. No, she said Omar Sheikh. Omar Sharif. Omar Sheikh. Omar Sharif. No, not Omar Sharif. That's the guy out of... That's the actor. Omar Sheikh. Is that who she's referring to? I think so, yeah. I thought she was saying Omar Sharif. I was like, Omar Sharif killed Osama bin Laden? No way! I'm pretty sure she's saying the guy who is known as... Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Yes. But anyway, the point being... That she's saying this is part of history in 2007 is that Osama bin Laden was dead. Mm -hmm. So, and she was then, I mean, this was the year, and she had already been campaigning for essentially she was going to be uh, become the president, the prime minister of Pakistan. Uh, so, there are many different reasons there why, uh, apart from just the social, as we've been talking about, the kind of social, uh, progressive nature of her, her attitude.
Well, she, mm. she spelled it out. She said, the forces I am up against do not want democracy. And she that's another thing that it's not just that she had the will to try and change things. She had been obviously involved for decades. So she knew the names and faces. Yeah. She was able to hone it down to three oligarchs or optimates, let's call them. Yeah. She's aware that, yeah, okay, there are lots of groups and groups, but mm. when it comes down to it, we're talking about a few people. I wonder if the former military officer she was referring to was the General Gull, the guy who's supposed to have wired 100 grand to... He could have been... Uh, Mohammed Atta. But recently... On the morning, just on 11, week, he was meeting absolutely, yeah. the Pentagon. It could have, he could have been one of them, but uh, just recently, this week, I think, uh, and... News from Pakistan, Musharraf has been officially charged with, with, with her assassination. I think he's been hung out to dry. It sounds yeah. like she well, they're and he were actually allies. Well, not really. Against, Musha- well, uh, Musharraf was like a, she a Western. She's very naive. She, she, well, she, all these people who get assassinated are ultimately naive in one way or another yeah. because they, I mean, they walk into assassinations. I mean, you know, I mean, JFK and an, uh, well, you forget you forgot the hard top on my car. Uh, whatever. <laughs> I like to see people. You know, well, I mean, there's also an element of the, 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 a lot of them shared the philosophy of, yeah. I mean, to hell with it. Sweet I want to be able to walk among the people. I don't know how many of them are on record as saying, no, I don't want well, it's a very difficult situation. It's a very difficult situation. I mean, are you, uh, if, you, if you really take the assassination threat seriously, you're going to stay in your house all the time and you're not going to be a popular leader then. I mean, you can't do... That's what you have to know. That's what you have to That's partly what makes them heroic, is that yeah. they say they are aware of this at some level, and they say, what the hell is it? I'm going to die trying. Yeah, and I think those heroes, those true heroes, realize that the good, the well-being of the people is more important than their own, their own life. JFK says something to this extent when he was told about the threats that were looming around him, he said that, uh, like some, I'm paraphrasing here, but I can live in permanent fear to to meet people. So, hell with these uh, threats, and if it happens, it happens. And uh, I, I would like to, to mention an anecdote that might explain why the elites are so cautious about covering their tracks and uh, uh, giving some uh, scapegoats or Patsies or suicide to cover up, up to cover up their assassinations. Um, when Julius Caesar was killed a few days after the assassination, you had thousands and thousands of Romans demonstrating in the streets, grieving, crying, and being angry. And amongst the people, there was one Roman individual who held the, who held the same name as a notorious yeah. anti-Caesarian. Well, the people were probably blinded by anger and they mixed up the name. They mixed up the individuals. And they thought this man in the crowd was an anti-Caesarian. And the reaction was so violent that after the fact, after the murder of this allegedly anti-Caesarian, authorities were not able to find one single part of the body it had been reduced literally to, to dust, to pieces. And uh, I think the elites know that the bond between the people and the true leader is very strong. That's why they want to, to reduce it post-mortem, and that's why they want to carefully cover the tracks. Yeah, and that's why they won't just do it in broad daylight. 
although you could argue that it was for JFK, but there was a carefully constructed oh, yeah. plan with a cover-up in place. With a patsy. Yeah. I mean... And uh, you remember the reaction of the people to uh, Oswald assassination by Ruby? That a lot of people were acknowledging, well, frankly, I won't shed a tear. It's a good thing mm. Oswald died. A lot of people are reacting this mm. way. Yeah. It can be the trigger of major social movements in, in right. assassination yeah. for which the cover-up doesn't work. But, you know, that's why Oswald was there and that's why he was killed. He was, you know, sort of... Mm-hmm. To, exactly. To appease people, you yeah. know. Mm-hmm. They put up the... the Sacrificial lamb. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. They focus the anger. The, yeah. They focus the anger of the people on the, on the party. Yeah. We haven't talked about Lady Diana. Well, we have an article on that, so anybody who wants to read about it can do that and watch the video. All of the information is really there and it's pretty clear-cut. Uh, I think we're going to leave it there for this week. We've pretty much used up all our time. Um, I don't know. It's, uh, in terms of the topic of our show, I think people should just read about uh, the people that we've discussed, do a bit of reading on them. And even though they're dead, they've been assassinated, taken out of the game. <clears throat> the stuff they did and what they wanted to do, the examples they set, can obviously do still live on. And cancer is an example of, uh, of, of, of what the world could be like compared to what it is today and as Jason was saying earlier on the show it's really ultimately because they keep assassinating them uh, it's really down to us uh, the the ordinary people to, to do something about it and if that means trying to live uh, in a different way or creating a different society uh, then that's what has to be done so um, anyway we hope you've enjoyed the show um, we will be back next week I'm going to leave you with another little snippet from or FK, and then we'll just go to our outro. So, thanks to Gary, our caller, and to our chat room chatters. We will see you, or hear you, maybe, next week. My favorite poem, my, my favorite poet was Aeschylus. He once wrote... Even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own despair against our will comes wisdom through the awful grace of God what we need in the United States is not division what we need in the United States is not hatred what we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country, whether they be 